Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 12th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, December 9th, and we have our friend Truthfids here once again to discuss the next few points, I should say, in, in his 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White. This is our third discussion of point 42, or of proof number 42, and as we have already said, this review of the meanings of certain words does not explicitly prove the race of the Israelites, but it does show that word meanings were obfuscated so as to distort the many other evidences that the message of, his, of Christ and his apostles and prophets is solely intended for white Europeans. Hello, Truthridge. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has ended up being the uh, longest proof so far. If anything, it only shows you how much of the Bible is horrifically mistranslated, and hopefully we can correct it for everyone. Um, and I just wanted to say... Um, I finally got the first part of 100 Proofs ready, as in the video format that goes on YouTube, the, you know, where it's all condensed into a quick eight-minute summary with all pictures and that, that's a lot easier to share with friends. So by the time this podcast goes live, the video should be up on YouTube for everyone, and uh, I can finally get going releasing the videos from now on. So yeah, ready to go when you are, Bill. Well, that's great to hear, and, and I'm sure people are, are looking forward to it, to the, to the remake and, and much more in-depth 100-proof video series. It, it's a um, tremendous task to, to put that all together. You're, you're talking about maybe, I, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of minutes of video. I, I wish you well in that endeavor. <laughs> Okay, we yeah. This... this first part is eight minutes. So we was talking about it. If if I did a hundred parts, eight minutes, this is gonna end up a very long video. But that's fine. I hope people will be patient and watch it all right and end these podcasts. Right, absolutely. And and I think that some of the parts are going to be a little longer than eight minutes. So I, I think it's gonna be a very long series. But that's fine. I, I mean, that's a wonderful undertaking. Here we're going to continue our discussion of major, major word mistranslations or misunderstandings that occur repeatedly throughout the Bible. And now we're going to speak about the words Adam, Enosh, and Mamzer, which basically in, in our King James Bible, is these words are translated as man, man, and bastards, right? Enosh is man, and, and Adam is man in the King James Version. And these are really two different words with two different meanings. And, and of course, Mamzer is a bastard, and a Mamzer, well, a, a Mamzer would be an Enosh, and we're going to explain why. But neither are, are really man in the sense of Adam. These words have different meanings. But first we must address a false claim in Christian identity circles. And, and I, I don't know why even some of the most noted Christian identity pastors have repeated 
this mistake, Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, and they insist that the word Enosh is a precise reference to so-called men of other or non-Adamic races. That is not true. Enosh is not a term describing men of other races. The fact is that examining the listings in Strong's Concordance, not for man, but for the English word men, it is very quickly realized that men of the race of Adam were very often referred to with the word Enosh. The Hebrew word Enosh, <clears throat> Strong's number 582, is related to and derived from the word Anash, Strong's number 605, which means frail or feeble. And therefore, Enosh refers to man as a mortal being. But the word Adam, as a noun, refers only to one particular race of men. The race created by Yahweh God, as it is described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And Genesis chapter 5, where we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That Hebrew word translated as generations is toledah. And it means descent or descendants. This is the book of the descendants of Adam. Not everyone in the Bible is a descendant of Adam. As we see later on in scripture, that there are Nephilim, Rephaim, Zuzim, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Girgashites, and others who cannot be traced back to Adam. Cain went in Genesis chapter 4 and built a city. He didn't build a city for merely him and his wife, wherever he got her from. These other races mentioned in Scripture, in, in Genesis chapter 6, at, as um, sons of heaven, or in the King James Version, sons of God, they go into the daughters of Adam, and, and there were Rephaim in the earth in those days, or I'm sorry, there were Nephilim, fallen ones, giants in the earth in those days, they didn't come from Adam. They're not descendants from Adam, and therefore, when they're described as going into the daughters of men and, and having children with them, that's a sin. That was fornication. That was race-mixing fornication. And for that, the entire race of Adam was punished by God and died in the flood. So there we have it. it. It's the first proof in Scripture that there are definitely other races of so-called people here on earth, and, and they show up again in Genesis chapter 14, Genesis chapter 15, Numbers chapter 13, and other places in Scripture. These other people are not from Adam. So, the word Adam as man or mankind cannot describe those other people. Where those other people come into contact with the race of Adam, the Israelites are told to destroy them all, to kill them all, to drive them out. 
And of course, the Israelites failed. So these other races of people, we perceive them as men because they're, they're hominids like us. They have bodies very much like us, and, and they're intelligent. They could speak and, and do things just like we can, but they're not Adam. They never can be Adam. These races that cannot be traced back to Adam, they were not ever counted among the descendants of Adam, and all of them were rejected by Yahweh God as being among the accursed races of Canaan. They were very likely in other places as well. We have the, the, the literature of, of the um, ancient Sumerians that describe how the, these Nephilim had, had these giants had ruled over some of the cities in Mesopotamia. So they weren't contained to the race of Canaan, to, to the people of Canaan. They were elsewhere also. The Kenites were not of Adam. Although the meaning of Genesis chapter 3 is argued by denominational Christians, Cain was not truly of Adam, and the Kenites are his descendants. But as for those other groups not being of Adam, they might argue about the Kenites, but as for those other groups, they have no grounds upon which to argue, because in the Bible it is clear that they are not of Adam starting with the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6 and going through to the listings of the nations of Canaan in Genesis chapter 15. And some of the events in Genesis chapter 14 where people called Zuzim are mentioned. And the word Zuzim simply means roving creatures. So they weren't even Enosh. They were just roving creatures. The Israelites had no other name for them. Now we must take this understanding a step further, because Enosh was used as a reference to any mortal man, regardless of race. And Adam is a reference to a man of a particular race. Sometimes, in the later books of scripture, the Psalms or the prophets, the two words are set in contradistinction to one another. And in those cases, it is apparent that Enosh is used in a manner which refers to men which are not of Adam. Examples of this are found on more than one occasion in the Psalms and also occur in the books of the prophets. But they are not readily evident because the meanings of the two words, Adam and Enosh, are not commonly distinguished by the translators. So they are treated equally. And both words are most often translated as man or in the plural as men. So what I'm saying so, is So Bill, if um Go on. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say if if a Israelite was acting like a nigger, could you call him an Enosh? Could could it be used as like a pejorative? Well, all men are Enosh because we are all feeble, we all die. But Enosh, in general, are not Adam. Only the Adamic race can be referred to as Adam. The other men who are not of Adam, they're also Enosh, just as people of the race of Adam are called after the term Enosh. In the, in the mortal sense, if, if you look at, and I'm going to pull up, 
at a specific example because I didn't have one here, but I shouldn't need one. You just go to the word men under Strong's Concordance, and it shows you a little number designating what word Adam or Enosh, or sometimes some other word. There are a couple of other words that refer to particular types of men, warriors or, or, or husbands or things like that, that aren't really um, disputatious. If you look up the word for men and go down the list, you'll see um, this word Enosh is number 582. And when you check a Hebrew manuscript, you'll see that the word Enosh is there and it was translated as man or men. And you see that quite often in, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 17, 18, 19, where it ref is referring to men who are Adamic men. Who, who are identified in other ways as descendants of Adam, being of Abraham's house or, or being of, of the, the kindred of Abraham or, or whatever. And, and we know that these men were Adamic men and they're referred to as Enosh collectively. So the word Enosh can refer to any mortal man but the word Adam is a specific term that only refers to one particular race. Therefore, why are they both translated as man consistently throughout Scripture? And failing to make that distinction causes confusion in the interpretation of Scripture. It causes much confusion. And there's a whole level of consciousness about race that is obfuscated by that, that exists in the original scriptures, but doesn't exist in any of the translations. So examples, and, and there are places in scripture where these two words are set in opposition to one another. In the 73rd Psalm, a psalm attributed to Asaph. Asaph was actually a prophet of the captivity. We read from verse 3. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain, and violence covers them as a garment. Now, in verse 5 of that psalm, the word other was added twice. It doesn't exist in the text. It was added twice, but it was not necessarily implied by the text. It certainly is not necessary to add that word. When you add words that are not implied by the text, you are representing them to say something that was not necessarily intended by the original author. The first word for men in that verse is Enosh. The second word for men in that verse is Adam. But in the Hebrew, they are both singular. They are not plural. The word for trouble in that verse is also labor or toil or work. The word for they are not they are not was trans translated from one word in verse 5 
and, and that was a third-person masculine plural adverb. And it actually follows the other words in the first clause, but it was moved to the beginning of the clause in all of the translations, all of the ones I checked. In the second half of the clause, there is a conjunction that was ignored and a preposition which was mistranslated. The word for like is more accurately with, which is a huge difference. The New American Standard Bible has a better translation of verse 4, speaking of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Therefore, following the conventional understanding of that adverb in verse 5, with which I do not necessarily agree, we would translate the verse to read, they are not in the labor of mortal man, which is the word Enosh, and with Adam, a reference to the Adamic man, they are not stricken. After the fall of Adam, the Adamic race were to be chastised by experiencing death as they were at first created to be immortal. However, by obfuscating the distinctions of the, these words, the distinctions of the meaning of these words, by doing that, the differences between the mortal man and the Adamic man are obscured. And another example of such obfuscation... So, so Bill... Um, I'm sorry, go on. I'm sorry. I just wanted to... So my understanding is he's basically saying that if you look at Jews, for example, they do whatever they want. They rob us and steal from us and live happy lives and don't. they're not put under trial. But we, on the other hand, go for all these trials... And, you know, sometimes we're poor because of it. Is, is that what he's saying, that he's envious of those evil bastards who can get away with everything? Absolutely. Or have in, I misunderstood that verse? It, in Romans, in chapter 8, in Ecclesiastes, I think it's in chapter 2 or chapter 1, it states very clearly that Yahweh God subjected man to experience death as a trial, as a lesson, but there's no bans or, or there's no pain in the death of the wicked because when they're dead, they're gone. They're gone. They don't, they're, they are Enosh, but they are not Adam. They do not have that immortal spirit. And Paul of Tarsus says in Hebrews that if you're not chastised, now chastisement is punishment, but it's not just punishment. Chastisement is punishment for correction. If you're not chastised, then you, you are a bastard and not a son. Paul of Tarsus, Hebrews chapter 12. These are racial distinctions. All men die. But the Adamic race has a particular purpose by God. It was created for that purpose. And that purpose is to have eternal life and to be subject to his will. So we are being chastised in this life. That's what Paul's explaining in Hebrews chapter 12. That's what the wisdom of Solomon explains in its opening chapters. That's what this psalm is explaining in, in the 73rd psalm. Yes, yeah, so all this chastisement, it's a learning experience for the afterlife. But um, the, the bastards, they don't have an afterlife, so there's no need for correction or anything. 
Absolutely. And that learning experience is what is explained basically, or what is also being taught in my next example from the 90th Psalm, where, where the meaning of the word man was obfuscated once again. When you take two different Hebrew words and translate them into the same word in English all the time, then you have a problem because you're missing a layer of understanding in the original language. You are removing an entire level of understanding from the scripture. In the 90th Psalm, which is a psalm attributed to Moses from verse 1, and I'm going to read four verses. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Now, what kind of sense does this make, this third verse in this 90th Psalm? Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. So here we shall focus on that verse. The first occurrence of the word man is Enosh, mortal man, the mortality of all men. And the second is Adam. In the original, both words are singular. The word for destruction is actually a word for dust. And various translations interpret it metaphorically, but it means dust, just as Abraham professed his mortality when he said that he was nothing but dust and ashes. And I'm going to look that up. It's in Genesis chapter 18. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but, which means which I am nothing but, which am but dust and ashes. So Abraham was professing his mortality. And so is this 90th Psalm. All Enosh, all mortal men are dust and ashes. We are all headed for the grave. But, and it's singular, it's not talking about general punishments of man. It's making a statement about the facts of, of this worldly creation, the facts of this worldly life that we have. So the first occurrence of the word man is Enosh, and the second occurrence is Adam. The word for destruction is dust. And we would interpret Moses to have been praising God and saying, you turn mortal man to dust, and you say, return ye children or sons of Adam. When all mortal men die, they turn to dust, but only the children of Adam are promised resurrection. That's what this psalm is teaching. There is no promise of resurrection for the children of the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Canaanites, or other bastards. Yet, you know, Christ said to his adversaries, you read the scripture and suppose that you have eternal life. That's what he said to them. But a lot of the meaning 
of what that eternal life is and who suppose who should suppose to have it is hidden in the fact that these words are both translated as man there is no promise of resurrection for the children of the nephilim the rephane the canaanites or any other bastards once these words are properly translated a new level of understanding emerges from scripture which the translations have all obscured there are children of god in the world as christ also explained often in the gospel there are people who are not of god in diverse places the race of adam is clearly distinguished from other men so moses was a christian identity racist as well <laughs> without a doubt because christian identity racism is the truth that's what the bible teaches that's why i am christian identity because spending so many years with, with nothing but studying the bible and going through all of these occurrences of the word man and finding these clear examples it, it's beyond doubt that this is truth and this is what christ taught throughout the revelation and the gospels <coughs> i'm sorry so now speaking of bastards the and and we're going to go back to that vision in daniel chapter 2 of of the beast the series of beast empires that the um the head of gold which was in the book of nezar and and the body of silver and the the trunk of of brass i think it was and and the feet of iron right well speaking of the ten toes in the vision of the fourth and final beast empire described in Daniel chapter 2 which were described as being composed of both iron and clay those ten toes and the iron was mingled with the clay so that there was no cohesion in them <clears throat> I'm sorry my voice is shot the vision itself informs us of the meaning and we read in Daniel chapter 2 in verses 42 and 43 and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men what would be wrong with that if all men were the same but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. The word for men in verse 43 is also Enosh, and it implies that the kingdom wherein Adamic and other men are mingled cannot stand for that reason. It's funny when you hear the Jews try to explain what caused the downfall of the Roman Empire. They'll try and say that the economy went to bits and, and that's what caused it. Not all this uh, bringing in slaves and, um, you know, making them citizens and all the mixing that made it crumble. Right, absolutely. And, and that's exactly what happened in history. That the, um, 
in the third century. His name escapes me right now, Caracalor or something like that. In the third century, a, a particular Roman emperor had declared that all the freedmen of the slaves were now citizens. And he made them all equal citizens with Romans. He, it, it was the Roman 14th Amendment. I'm sorry, you're an Englishman. The 14th Amendment in the United States declared all the freed Negroes after the Civil War to be citizens and gave them all the, the same rights to vote as the white man. So, yeah, and, uh, that, that sorry, was Rome's I was going to say, early Amendment. on, they even outlawed tribes mixing with each other, right? That when they conquered uh, Macedon, they forbade different uh, parts of Greece intermarrying, and especially Romans, it was looked down upon to marry other tribes. Absolutely. But they had, um, the Romans had a law. I discussed it recently. They had a law that granted people the right to marriage. And once you had that right to marriage as a Roman citizen, you were able to intermarry any other Roman with any other Roman citizen, but not all of the provinces were granted that right. Many of the peoples conquered by Rome were not granted that right. <coughs> so they couldn't go to Italy and marry a Roman woman or go to Corinth and, and marry a Dorian Greek woman. They couldn't do that because they didn't have that right. A Roman citizen could not go to Egypt and marry a, a, a mongrel Egyptian. He didn't have that right because those Egyptians didn't have that right to marriage. So, yes, the Romans did keep themselves racially, that they kept their racial integrity through those laws. But once all of the freed slaves were granted citizenship, they would have been given that right. They would have had that right because of the circumstances of where they lived. That was the beginning of the breakdown of the integrity, the racial integrity of the Roman people, in my opinion. And, and I think it's pretty clear. The Hebrew word mamzer is understood in English to be a bastard. This understanding is clear in Greek translations of scripture, where mamzer was translated as nathos. In Greek, nathos is opposed to another word, genesius. Genesius comes from genea, which is race. According to Liddell and Scott, genesius means of or belonging to the race, lawfully begotten, legitimate, opposite to nathos. So if you look at Liddell and Scott's lexicon for nathos, it means a bastard, a baseborn child. And then they give an example that, that's really not true. One born of a slave or concubine opposed to Ganesius. In the ancient Greek world, a slave would not generally be of one's own race. So claiming that a nathos is merely a child born of a slave and a citizen or a free man is misleading. 
Furthermore, claiming that a legitimate marriage is a marriage in a church or in a government building between people who have no who have a government issued license, that is also misleading. In in the Roman Catholic Church, <clears throat> when I was a child, we were taught that a bastard is somebody that didn't get married in a church. Are you kidding me? In the ancient world, marriages were held at home and there were no licenses. Neither was there any priest or town judge required to officiate those marriages. When Isaac first saw Rebekah, as we read in Genesis chapter 24, and Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What do you think was going on inside that tent? Was there a priest in an altar and, and a town clerk issuing licenses inside that tent? Or was there a bed? They got married in a bed. And likewise, Jacob married Leah in a bed, even if he was deceived by Laban. He was nevertheless married to Leah. So we read in Genesis chapter 29, now Jacob had gone to Laban's home in Padanaram, and Laban was his mother's brother, and Jacob had ended up committing himself to work for Laban for seven years so that he could have the hand of Rachel in marriage. And there was no town clerk involved. Jacob and Laban did not hop on a chariot and ride down to the city clerk to get a marriage license. That didn't happen. They made an agreement between each other. So Jacob worked seven years, and Laban put him up in a room late at night in the dark, and he must have instructed his daughter what to do. He brought Leah into that room instead of, ja instead of Rachel, and Jacob slept with Leah, thinking he was sleeping with Rachel. There were no electric lights in those days. If it was nighttime, it was dark. And, and unless you had candles and things like that, and, and there was a, an extreme sense of modesty in those days. So Jacob slept with Leah, and she became his wife. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, the seven years, that I may go in unto her. Well, that is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. This is the wedding celebration. But Jacob thinks he's getting, getting Rachel. <clears throat> and it came to pass an evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah for his handmaid, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, Behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this that thou hast done to me? Did I not serve with thee for Rachel? And why then have you beguiled me? Jacob was deceived. These examples and others serve to prove that marriage is an agreement between men and that the sexual union is the consummation of the marriage. So that upon the act of intercourse, a man and a woman became married. 
or perhaps they were committing adultery if the woman was already married to somebody else. The Bible informs us in Genesis chapter 2 of the conditions for a legitimate marriage where Adam named all the beasts of the earth and a suitable wife was not found. So Yahweh made him a wife of his own flesh and bone. And then we read, and Adam said, this is now, looking at the woman that Yahweh just created, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That is a legitimate wife, a woman of your own flesh and bone. But fornication is the pursuit of strange or different flesh. And it is fornication which is the grounds for an illegitimate marriage. A child of illegitimate birth is a child of mixed race, and that is a bastard. The word genesios is of or belonging to the race. That's where we get our word genuine from. That's where the Romans got that word from. And therefore, a nathus is someone who is not of the same race as his parents. Since a mixed race sexual union produces children who are, who are of a different racial characteristic than either parent. Also, Bill, the word German comes from that word, that proper um, son. <laughs> Today we have that name. So somehow we ended up with that. I'm sure it's Yahweh's will, right? Well, well, right. I believe so. I, I certainly do believe so. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, we read, A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Now, it could be explained that 10th generation is an idiom, and it means forever, because a, a bastard in the 10th generation is still a bastard. He's never getting into the congregation. But why? If one couple failed to get a marriage license or to have a church wedding before they had a child, why would 10 generations of their children be condemned? There is no valid reason. Moses had a son born to a pagan woman of the Midianites in the land of Cush, and he was not condemned. In fact, Yahweh demanded that that son be circumcised so that he could be admitted into the congregation. Or why would demand, what, Yahweh demand Moses to circumcise that son? The Midianites, descendants of Abraham and Keturah, were of the same race as Moses. She wasn't an Ethiopian. That's another mistranslation, unfortunate mistranslation. In Hebrews chapter 12, Paul wrote, But if you be without chastisement, which is punishment for correction, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. Now you take Hebrews chapter 12, and you put it right next to that passage that I had cited earlier from the 73rd Psalm about the wicked and, and, and the children of Adam who, who are being stricken in, in their chastisement. Then a little further on, Paul wrote, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, now, the first time a root of bitterness is mentioned in Scripture, it's in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. So Esau was a fornicator. Selling his birthright to his own brother, that doesn't make him a fornicator. Was Esau a fornicator for selling his birthright? Or did he sell his birthright because he was a fornicator? And he didn't care about his birthright. The only sin of Esau, as the accounts in Genesis relate, is found in the fact that he had taken wives of the Canaanites rather than wives of his own race. So his children were bastards. Thus we read from the last verse of Genesis chapter 27 and into a couple of verses of Genesis chapter 28. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. They were the Hittites, the Canaanites. The Hittites are a branch of the race of the Canaanites. And by this time, they were mixed with, with Rephaim and Nephilim and, and Zuzim and these other races. I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are daughters of the land, the land of Canaan, what good shall my life do me? And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him. Now this is Isaac's response to what Rebekah had said and charged him and said unto him, thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give to thee the blessing of Abraham and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So if Jacob marries from his own race, he's going to receive the blessings of Abraham. If Jacob marries the daughters of the Canaanites, then Rebekah's life is for nothing, because she has no legitimate grandchildren, period. That's the only proper way to read that. And this is not a religious issue. It's a racial issue. All of Jacob's children were considered legitimate in the eyes of God, even though he was married in a bed and never in a church or a town hall. The four sons who were born to handmaids to slaves were also considered legitimate and each had a full share of the inheritance in spite of the fact that their mothers were slaves to Jacob's wives. When Jacob's wives gave their handmaids to Jacob, the handmaids themselves, they had no say in the matter. They couldn't, they couldn't say no, they were slaves. And the same situation was true of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's slave, and Sarah decided to tell her husband to go into Hagar and have sons. Abraham was happy to do it. 
But it was Sarah's decision to do because Hagar was Sarah's slave, Sarah's property. So in the Bible, maybe to the Greeks, just because one is a slave, it is a, a that union creates bastards. No, that's not true. To the Greeks, slaves were someone other than their own tribe, and the Greeks did not even mix tribes. Herodotus had considered Cyrus, the king of Persia, to be a bastard for the same reason that his mother was a Mede and his father was a Persian. But in the biblical viewpoint, the Medes are Adamic. They're from Adam. And the Persians are Adamic. Adamic. They're from Elam. And they're from Adam. So from the biblical viewpoint, the Medes and the Persians are really of the same Adamic race. And yes, Medes can marry Persians. Just like from the biblical viewpoint, Germans and, and Englishmen, or Germans and Franks, notice I said Franks and not French, Germans and Franks are of the same race, and yes, they could get married and produce legitimate children. From the biblical historical viewpoint, where we understand that they are all from the race of Adam, if indeed they're true or genuine, right, Germans and true Franks and true Englishmen. So Ishmael was legitimate, but he wasn't legitimate according to the purpose of Yahweh. Ishmael was not a bastard because Hagar was an Adamic Egyptian woman. And the Egyptians at that time were white. So Jacob, two of his wives were slaves. But all those children were legitimate because ostensibly they were all Adamic. All of his wives were Adamic. They were from that same land in Haran, in northern Mesopotamia. The children of Joseph were from a wife of the priest of On. They were given additional blessings, although they were born to a daughter of a pagan Egyptian priest. Rachel and Leah and their handmaids were pagan. They weren't Christians. They weren't Jews. That They didn't worship Yahweh. They were all pagans. Abraham's ancestors were all pagans. Abraham's own father and brother were pagans, and his grandfather, they were all pagans, according to Joshua chapter 24. They all worshiped pagan gods, and so did Laban, and so did Rachel, and so did Leah. So Rebecca was not troubled because the Hittites were pagans. Rebecca was troubled because the Hittites were not of Adam. They were mixed. She didn't need bastard grandchildren. <clears throat> or the pro promise to Abraham would have died right there. It would have been over. So Jacob was told to marry people of his own race so that he could continue to have that promise. Now, all this talk of bastards and, and people of other races leads us to another discussion concerning the words for stranger, as there is also much contention and many wrong interpretation of that word, that word stranger. I don't know if you have anything to say before I move on. I was just going to say it's so clear the Bible is all about race. 
And uh, yeah, in regards to strangers and aliens, this is where people will pick out verses where it says, um, be friendly to Esau or the Edomites, because, you, you know, which is a mistranslation or other verses where they set, try and say, see, see, you, you should be friends with these bastard races or non-whites. When, uh, as we've been doing, when you clear up all the translations, uh, there are no gaps. It's all, uh, everything coincides and it's all very clear, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. That there are um, more problems with the Hebrew scriptures than merely translation. That there are um, similar letters, very similar letters, which in ancient times were often confused by the scribes. And two of those letters are the Daleth or the letter D. And the resh, or the letter R, the daleth and the resh, look almost identical in handwriting, and even in in typesetting, they're almost identical. And in handwriting, they were very. There, there are many, many examples in the Old Testament where scribes had confused the daleth and the resh, and in Hebrew. The word for Syrian is written <clears throat> with an Aleph, a Resh, and a Mem, which is A-R-M. And if it's plural, the plural suffix would be added to it, like we have an, a letter S that the, um, the Hebrews use the letter Yad in some instances to signify a plural. So A-R-M-Y or I would be Aromi, would be Assyrian. And that's Aram, isn't it? That's Sorry. Aram. Yes, that's Aram, A-R-A-M in Genesis chapter 10. So an Edomite, and Edom is actually the same word as Adam. And the translators created the spelling of Edom to distinguish Edom from Adam. So they did right in making that distinction. And there are the theological reasons that Edom and Adam are basically the same word. There are, because Jacob represents the, the race of, of the descendants of Abraham that would follow the spirit. Not necessarily were they the only descendants that had the spirit. All Adamic people have the spirit of God because Adam was created with that spirit. But the Theologically speaking, the descendants of Jacob symbolized that the children of Abraham that would follow the spirit. And that's what Jacob did. He waited for his father to tell him who to marry rather than going out and, and banging the first thing that moved, which is what Esau did. Esau went out and found his own wife and grabbed the first thing that moved and, and had a wife. The, the first woman whose allures that he was enchanted with, and that's who he married, and they were daughters of the Hittites, right? So he never consulted with his parents who to marry. So Esau was renamed Edom because he represents the, the fleshly sinful man, and that's a theological distinction. 
that has nothing to do with, with racial distinctions. That's between Jacob and Esau and their full-blooded brothers. So, Edom is spelled A or Aleph, and then Daleth or D, Mem for M, A-D-M, where Aram is A-R-M. So an Edomite is A-D-M-Y with a Yod at the end, right? So the two words are identical, and if a scribe confuses that D and that R, then an Edomite becomes an Aramean, or an Aramean becomes an Edomite. And there are places, even in the King James Version of the Bible, where a man named Obed-Edom, sometimes his name is spelled Obed-Aram in the Septuagint. So ancient scribes that translated the Septuagint confused the D and the R, the Dalit and the Resh. And there are many other words that this affects, and, and many other readings of scripture that even mainstream scholars ha have maintained that the D and the R are confused, but they don't point to Deuteronomy 23, 7, where it says, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother, and thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land, we don't read Edomite in Deuteronomy 23.7. And we read Aramean. Thou shalt not abhor an Aramean is what we believe is the true reading of Deuteronomy 23.7. And that's because Laban was called Laban the Aramean. You'll see Padanaram was in northern Syria, and Genesis 25, verse 20, Laban the Syrian. Genesis 28, verse 5, Bethuel the Syrian, Rebekah's brother. And, and that pact that he made, Laban made Jacob swear, would, would that also factor into it? That he swore he would not have war between the houses that you mentioned last week? Yes. And, and, and then we read in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few. So, Syrian, Egyptian, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 5. Therefore, I read, and I would insist on reading, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7. Thou shalt not abhor a Syrian, for he is thy brother. Only a few verses later, Deuteronomy 26.5, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. Deuteronomy 26.5 proves to me my contention over that spelling of that word that became Edomite, that it should really be Syrian or Aramy, Aromi, Syrian, a, a man of Aram, because a Syrian ready to perish was my father, the children of Israel were being told, thou shalt not abhor a Syrian. Yahweh God does not contradict his own law. When we get to Malachi, Malachi being written 
about 1,200, maybe 1,100 years after Moses, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. If Yahweh wrote, thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, and then he, by his own word, abhors Esau, then he contradicts himself, then he's a liar. There is no way that Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 7 should say Edomite. It should say Syrian because, Deuteronomy 26, 5, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. Speaking of Jacob. So that's a digression, but it's a necessary digression. It's another example of how the scripture, it is very clear once the words are examined and translated properly, and the Bible never contradicts itself once you do that. But the King James translators, they just followed the understanding of the Jews. And of course, it's very clear in, in the letters of the apostles that the Jews can't possibly understand the Old Testament. And, and Paul of Tarsus makes that... that um, explanation, very clear, that Jews cannot understand the Old Testament in his epistles to the Corinthians. Only Christians can understand the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is a Christian book, just as well as the New. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this leads us into strangers and aliens, unless there's anything else you'd like to add. <laughs> no, that's okay. We can get into it. First, I, I must offer a list of terms and some brief definitions. And, and I'm going to start with words which have no racial connotations at all. But in reality, none of these words have racial connotations. The first word is ger. And it's spelled two different ways in, in English, G-U-R or G-U-W-R. That's because it's spelled two different ways in, in um in Hebrew, that there's variations of the spelling, some with the yod, or I'm sorry, the vav, the vav, and some without. And, and let me say that too, letter confusion in ancient Hebrew manuscripts, the resh and the dalit are often confused, but so is the vav. When you compare the vav, the resh, and the dalit, if a scribe made that top stroke on a vav just a little too long, then a scribe of a subsequent generation can interpret that as a resh or, or a dalit and, and have a, an r or, or a d instead of a, a vav, and he might be inventing a whole new word through that confusion. So, so there are problems with original Hebrew manuscripts, and, and they really have to be examined at multiple levels before they're even translated. And, and the King James translators and, and most subsequent translators have failed to do that. <clears throat> Sometimes um, mainstream modern scholars do correct words here and there where they realize that that did happen, but not enough. <laughs> they don't do it enough. They should go to Deuteronomy 23.7 and do it. Okay, so this word ger, I'll call it. it. It's a verb which means to sojourn. And therefore, there is a derivative 
Strong's number 1616, and I'll pronounce that Geyer, it's G-E-Y-R in Strong's English transliteration. Geyer is a sojourner because Ger, number 1481, means to sojourn. So that word's translated as stranger almost everywhere it appears in Scripture. And then there is a word that's another derivative of Ger, and that's Strong's number 4033. And it's Magur, M-A-G-U-R, and it means sojourning. It refers to a temporary lodging or abode, and therefore in some contexts referring to people, it's translated as stranger. Then there's another word <clears throat> that means basically in English sojourner. I might translate this one as immigrant more accurately to distinguish it from the others, right? And that's Toshab, 8453. Toshab is also a sojourner. Strong's derives it from Yashab, which is number 3427, which means to dwell or to remain in or settle in a place, a place that is not the land of your fathers, right? And Could Ger be translated as a guest, or, or would that be possible? Well, well, yes, it could. But when we get to Greek, we will see that. That's the meaning. That's the true meaning of the word xenos. A xenos in Greek in the New Testament is also translated as stranger, but a xenos is really a guest friend, and the man that. That, that the only modern academic that I've read, right, that translates that word xenos correctly is William Kovacs. I'm not even sure if he's a Christian or a Jew, but in his translations of, of some of the Greek classics, and I'm speaking about the plays of Euripides, the, poet, the, the poetry of the tragic poet Euripides. William Kovacs translated that for the Loeb Classical Library, and I have it here. I don't know if he translated it at all, because other manuscripts have been discovered since the original publication, but he translated the first three Loeb Classical Library volumes of Euripides. And I think the later three, three more were, or two more were published and there by another translator. And I don't remember how he treated the term. But William Kovacs, wherever he saw that word xenos in the writings of Euripides, he translated it as guest friend because that's what it means. So, and, and I'm going to make this illustration later. And a, an invader is not a xenos. That's not a stranger in that sense, but a visitor from, from another country with whom you have good relations, that is a xenos. And that's another distinction that's totally lost in the English translations of the Bible. Totally lost. So yes, I would equate a ger, which is a sojourner, or, or a toshab, to the Greek word xenos.
because they are outsiders that you're inviting into your land, that you're allowing to stay under peaceable terms into your land, and you're accepting them into your society. And, and people in the ancient world did not do that for alien races. So a person from the tribe of Ephraim could go into the land of Judah and be a Ger or, or a Toshab, a sojourner, and live in Judah. There's a word, Ben, 1121, and, and it's often confused by people who are only um, concordance understanders of Hebrew, because you really need a lot more than the concordance to really start to understand Hebrew. Ben is merely a son, but often it is used along with other words, which may mean sojourner or stranger, and therefore we see in, in um, 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see the word son of a stranger, and it's speaking of, of an Amalekite, or in Genesis 17, 12, it says, a son not of thy seed, and, and it's actually speaking to Abraham. And, and it means someone of a different family line, but not necessarily someone of an alien race, as we use the term race. And, and I'll get to that a little later on also. So all of these words, <clears throat> um, Ben, Toshab, Magor, Ger, Ger, it, it is unfortunate <clears throat> that any of these words were ever translated as stranger, since they could be used to refer to people of any race and even to Israelites of other tribes who had been sojourning in a land other than their own among other Israelites. So, like I, the example I used, if somebody from the land of Asher, somebody from the tribe of Asher comes into the land of the, the town of Benjamin, a town of Benjamin, and, and lives there in order to do something, that maybe he practices his trade there. Maybe the people of Benjamin needed um, a particular sort of smith or, or carpenter, and he had that skill, and, and he was permitted to come and, and rent a house and, and work there. And, and that's fine. So the same would be true of, of a man from Damascus who was a Syrian by race, could come into a tribe of Israel and, and work there. And they're sojourners, but they're not strangers in, in, the, um, in, in the sense of somebody of an alien race. So they should have never been translated as strangers because it obfuscates the scripture and it confuses people when real strangers are discussed in scripture. And, and that leads us to go on and talk about the words which really do mean stranger in Hebrew, but Neither do they have a racial connotation, as we're going to see. And the first of those I would like to discuss is zur or zur. And, and that, just like that word ger, G-U-R or G-U-W-R, the W representing that vav letter, zur has the same thing going on. It could be pronounced 
it, it can be spelled Z-U-R or Z-U-W-R. And, and the U is basically kind of objective also, right? It, it's Z-R, Sadi Resh, or Sadi Vav Resh, Z-W-R in Hebrew. So I don't know why they did that. I, I really don't. In Strong's Concordance, this word, Zer, which is often translated as stranger, is considered to be a primitive root. I don't accept that. I don't accept that zer is a primitive root. There's another word, zer, and that's 2213 in Strong's Concordance, which refers to something on a border. So we have this word stranger, zer, 2114, and then we have another word at 2213 in Strong's, zer, which refers to something on a border, and it only makes sense that that type of stranger is the type of person that lives just over the border. Whatever race, it doesn't matter. It's a geographical distinction of a stranger. Somebody from across the border. Just like we say in, in, in America, somebody from across the border is a Mexican or a Canadian. And the Mexican isn't of our race, and the Canadian is, usually. So that they're just somebody from over the border or somebody from across the border. If you're in Maine and, and you said to me, Bill, where's your friend from? And I'd say, oh, he's from across the border. And you would know he's a Canadian because of the context, right? He's from New Brunswick or from Quebec. So if you're in Arizona and you said, Bill, where's that... Um, Where's your gardener from? <laughs> that guy doing your gardener, where's he from? And I'd say, oh, he's from over the border. Then you would know that he was a Mexican because of the context, right? So that's how I look at this word, zer. It's a stranger from over the border. It's just somebody from across the border. It could be your race. It could be another race. There's, there's um, another word that Strong's... Um, says comes from Zer 2213, which refers to something on the border. And that's Zara, Z-A-R-A, it's spelled in Strong's transliteration. And that's number 2214. And that, Strong's decides, defines that as disgust in the sense of estrangement. And he derives it from 2114, Zer. However, I would associate both 2114 and 2214, Zer and Zara, as derivatives of 2213, Zer, which is just something on the border. And I would understand a Zur stranger to simply refer to people from outside or upon one's borders. And I would insist that the three words are clearly related in this manner. So concerning the ancient Israelites, Azur could be someone of the same race or one of the other races, such as the Canaanites, which were on the borders. But Syrians and Egyptians of the same race were also on the borders. In the 69th Psalm, attributed to David, we read, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. 
David was not implying that he became like someone of a different race. He was only saying that he became estranged from his own brothers. So what I'm saying is that the word Zur is not necessarily describing somebody of a different race when it appears in Scripture. It's only describing someone, whether or not he's of another race, who is from over the border. That's all it's saying. Now, the implication in that is that he's not of your people. The implication is that he's not an Israelite. However, that doesn't mean that he's not Adamic. He's just probably not an Israelite. So David's saying, I'm become as a stranger. He's not giving that. There's no racial connotation in that. Finally, these words for stranger, they're all translated as stranger in the Old Testament, but you don't know because of the way they're translated, you don't know what they really mean. Finally, there's another group of three words, which are really different forms of the same word. And they are Strong's numbers 5235, 5236, and 5237. And in the, the English transliteration, they are Necker, Nekar, and Nakri. And in the King James Version, they are all translated as stranger. So what follows is from a post I had made at the Christagenia Forum I think last year, I, I don't remember exactly when, I'll, I'll try to dig it up again and actually link it in the text of this podcast. I don't know if you have anything to add or to state before I start with this citation of, of my own writing from last year. So, so it's going to become clear that um, all these words are not necessarily racial and that um, pejoratives were used for non-whites. Absolutely. That that's what the conclusion will come, right? Absolutely. That is the conclusion, because none of these words for stranger are, are necessarily racial. It depends on the context. But they were used of other Israelites. And, and we're, we're about to prove that. It's no doubt. Yeah, you know, there are Christian identity supposed, I can only call them supposed teachers, people that claim to be teachers of Christian identity today that insist that these words describe the other races. And therefore, where the Bible tells us to accept strangers, they insist that we should accept people of other races, blacks, Mexicans, Chinese, whatever. Because they insist that these words refer to people of other races. They insist that we must accept those people because of the few passages in Scripture that tell us to accept strangers. But the fact is that these words, none of them are specific terms for other races. And therefore, we do not have to interpret those passages that tell us to be kind to strangers in the manner that they insist applies to other races. We don't have to do that. They are being treacherous by insisting that these terms refer to other races. And Clifton fell into this trap, and, and even myself, I took it for granted that it was true. 
when I was early in my Christian identity studies. But it's not true. Go look at all these words that I just listed and examine their definitions. The only um, logical conclusions are those to which I've come these past couple of years. And, and the other one also is um, the, the regions that originally, uh, like uh, Israelites, after a few centuries of settling, the people who lived in the land of Moab would be called a Moabite, even though they'd be an Israelite, right? Right. And, and you know, and, that can lead people astray. Exactly. And, and therefore, to Ruth could, could be a stranger to the people of Judah because she was born and raised in the land of Moab. But she was clearly, in the context of the book of Ruth, it could clearly be demonstrated that she had to be an Israelite. And, and I've done that somewhere at Christagenia in podcast, a podcast on the book of Ruth. So these last three words, Nekar, Nekar, and Nakri, I really do believe that Nekar had, had um, evolved over the centuries into the word nigger or, or niger in Latin, which came to mean black, but that was an evolution over many centuries. And, and we see anybody who studied language has to realize that it evolves and that over time, words take on new shades of meaning in different contexts. And I think Neckar is one of them. And, and it became our word for nigger. So, one, I'm going to go to my Christianian forum post. A couple of things that are missed in assessing the way in which the various words for stranger were used in the Old Testament are these. And first, the colloquial idioms of the various eras or periods in the Bible. Like you said, a Moabite can be an Israelite who's a stranger to the Judahites, right? There are, rounding roughly, about 500 years between Moses and Ruth, 1,000 years between Moses and Daniel, 1,100 years between Moses and Ezra. We cannot expect the vocabulary to remain absolutely consistent between these distant centuries, and with certainty, it did not. Therefore, considering the law of God, the usage in the books of Moses should be considered first in interpreting words and their meanings. In other words, you shouldn't go to the way Ezra or Nehemiah used a word and insist that Moses meant it that way when he didn't. Because Ezra and Nehemiah are in a much later time, period of time, and under far different circumstances. So the second thing that is missed in this perspective is the historical perspective and national attitudes. <clears throat> At the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, even lost Israelites among the Samaritans were absolutely despised since they could not document their genealogy. Since the objective of the time of Ezra was, and Nehemiah was to preserve the racial integrity of the remnant nation of Judah, Everybody who had no recorded genealogy was evidently a candidate for Nakri status to be considered a Nakri stranger, right? And this attitude, I believe, was carried over into the books of Chronicles, which were compiled around that same time. The common perception 
among identity Christians is that nekar and nakri are always used to describe a person of another race, but that is not true. It is an oversimplified explanation which has done more damage to our basic understanding of scripture than it has done good. The verb form of nekar, which has the same spelling and is found at Strong's number 5234, can mean recognize and is often translated as acknowledge or discern in the King James Version. Now, I don't know how, and this is something I have to study further. The noun form becomes somebody that you don't recognize. And I think there's some Jewish treachery going in there, right? Maybe Nekar is somebody that you don't know, but you do recognize as somebody of your own race. I haven't studied into that enough yet because Hebrew, the meanings, the real meanings of Hebrew words are really obscured by the damned Jews. They do it all the time and, and they've done it in our King James Version. So 5234 is the verb form of nekar, 5235, and 5235 is translated as stranger, but 5234, the verb is translated as acknowledge or recognize or discern. The noun is used of Joseph in comparison to his brethren in Genesis 42.7, where we read, and Joseph saw his brethren and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them and spoke roughly unto them. That word strange being nekar. Then the word appears in Genesis 42, 8, where we read, and Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. Joseph did not make himself into someone of another race. He didn't put blackface on so, it, so that he could look like a Negro. He, rather, he only acted in a way by which he hoped his brethren would not recognize him. The word was sometimes used in other contexts of other Israelites. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 5, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 8. This is how it is used in Isaiah chapter 56 of an Israelite of the captivity who had been estranged from God, who is no longer recognized as an Israelite. Wherever it is used, it does not necessarily refer to someone of another or non-Adamic race. It's just simply not true. Likewise, the word nakri is not necessarily someone of a different race, as many identity Christians often insist. And it, it's ridiculous to make such an inscription when you do a real word study. Related to that word nekar and the corresponding verb, nakri also merely refers to a person unrecognized or unknown. You could walk around your, your home county and, and not recognize 80% of the people. They're knockery to you, even though they're of your same race. And a lot of them might be fifth and sixth cousins. In Genesis chapter 31, verse 15, the wives of Jacob had spoken in reference to their own father and said, Are we not counted of him strangers? Likewise, Job 
declared in his calamity, that they that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. In Job chapter 19, then in Psalm 69, David cried out that I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. All of these passages use this term, knockery. Rachel and Leah, Job and David, they were not complaining that somehow they were miraculously transmogrified into niggers. They were only lamenting that they were estranged from their own families or households. Ruth had also called herself a stranger in that sense in relation to Boaz using that same word. A knockery is an outsider, someone who is unknown to the beholder, and the term does not designate race or any particular race. In different times or historical contexts, it seems that the use of these terms had varying significance. In the period of the Old Kingdom, while the Canaanites and related Rephaim and other tribes were always accursed, the terms nekar or nakri were also used to define acceptable Adamic people such as the Egyptians or Syrians. So, speaking of Ted Wheeland, contrary to Wheeland's claims, one cannot prove that wherever nekar or nakri appear in scripture that it referred to people of non-Adamic races, and that contention is outside of the context of scripture. But in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, as Jerusalem was being rebuilt, the need for the community to maintain religious and racial exclusivity, while it had always existed, was explicitly recognized and enforced by the rulers. Whereas earlier in history, it had often been neglected by the corrupt kings. That neglect is clearly condemned in the words of the prophets. By that time, after the return from Babylon, many of the surrounding peoples had indeed mingled with the Canaanite races, or if they were remnants of Israel, they no longer had their genealogies as they were kept by the priests in the old kingdom to prove that they had not mingled. So the rulers, meaning Nehemiah and Ezra, justly urged the people of the return to account all of them as strangers, regardless of their race. And this, in turn, seems to have led to the troubles with the Samaritans, many of whom were Israelites. That Samaritan woman at the well told Christ, my father Jacob dug this well. And she wasn't lying, and he acknowledged that. He didn't refute it. He didn't argue with her. He acknowledged her. She must have been an Israelite who was a remnant of Israelite in Samaria, and there must have been quite a few of them, even though they weren't all Israelites. Many of them were, and there must have been. And the, the subsequent accounts in the book of Acts proves that, and in the gospel. So, in the days of Josiah, which ended only 120 years before Nehemiah became governor in Jerusalem. He had cleansed Samaria of idols and returned the remnants of Israel who had remained there to worship in the temple, which proves that some Israelites were left behind in Samaria. 
after the Assyrian deportations of most of Israel. But in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Samaritans were being rejected. And that was the primary source of friction and enmity between Samaritans and Judeans. Certain Samaritans knew and believed they were Israelites, but they couldn't have any part in the rebuilding of the temple, so there was always that enmity between them. And the Judeans were only doing what they thought was right by preserving the people of Judah until the time when they converted and, all and the And then Edomites. they saw... Um, I'm sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, and then later. they saw Edomites being converted. That must have made them furious, right? Oh, yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. But by Roman times, it really didn't matter. So, yes, when the Samaritans saw that the Judeans went out and converted all the Edomites, yes, that must have made them furious. Because even until the, the time of Christ, the Judeans and the Samaritans still despised each other, but the Judeans had went and converted all the Edomites. You're right. That, that must have made them upset. That must have just added fuel to the fire between them. So some of these words, which are commonly translated as stranger, I'm sorry, I can't read without glasses. So none of these words, which are commonly translated as strangers, none of them are technical terms for non-Adamic people or people of other races. The truth is that from a side, from people mentioned in the Bible, such as the Canaanites and Rephaim, the children of Israel had little or no contact with black Africans, with yellow Asians, or brown or red Indians or Americans, meaning Latin Americans and indigenous Americans. They had no contact with any of those people who were all on other continents, that they weren't in Palestine at, at the time. They weren't in Palestine when the scriptures developed throughout the white history of ancient Palestine and Mesopotamia. So while I believe that the word Nekar may have evolved into the Latin word Niger, meaning black, and ultimately the American word nigger, originally it never referred to a black, although it could have referred to a black, but it could have referred to a white man too. It's just somebody that you don't recognize, perhaps, according to the traditional understanding of the Hebrew language. Like Hebrew, there are also several Greek words translated as stranger, but they, that they have a greater meaning than stranger. The most common of these we've already discussed is Xenos, um, Strong's number 3581. And it also appears in a couple of compound words like Philoxenia appears once in scripture, and, and there's one or two others. So, Xenos is primarily a guest friend applied to persons and states bound by treaty or tie of hospitality, according to Liddell and Scott. That's how they defined it, and as I explained, that's how William Kovacs translated it throughout his translation of the works of Euripides. The Roman, Greek, or Syrian or anyone else subject to the empire would very likely be such an individual in the New Testament period. 
but a group of Mandingo or Mongolian warriors, or a swarm of Mexican migrants or African refugees would probably have all been destroyed as soon as they came over the border. They did not have that entitlement, which would have made them a Zenos stranger. The next word translated stranger in the New Testament, it appears a couple of dozen times in the Septuagint but it only appears once in the New Testament. And it does refer to someone of another race. And it appears only at Luke chapter 17, verse 18, where it describes a Samaritan as opposed to Judeans. The Greeks used the word genea, which is race, and from which alogenes, which is someone of another genea, is derived, they use that word genea in a narrower context than we use the word today, the word race today, to describe even only particular families within a nation. If, if, if you read a, um, any Greek history book and any significant work of ancient Greek history, you'll see references to the the race of Heracles, the Heraclidahi, the race of Odysseus, or the race of Agamemnon. And that's not a reference to the nation or people to which Odysseus, Agamemnon, or Heracles had belonged. Instead, that's a reference to the man and his descendants within the greater nation. That's how the Greeks used the term race. Now, of course, at one time, <clears throat> the race of Israelites were simply one family within a larger body of people called Hebrews. Or the race of Judah were simply one nation or one tribe within the larger body of people called Israel. But the Israelites, even though they were one nation and one race at one time, they became many nations historically. So while we use the term race in a more general sense, the historical, the, the historical narrative also insists that we should that Germans and Englishmen, true Germans and true Englishmen are really one race, even though today we could also consider them separate races, as the Greeks used the term race, right? So it's all according to context that we must understand the definition of a word. So an Ologanes could describe a Bavarian as opposed to a Rhinelander or an Austrian and it is not necessarily someone of another race as we know the term to be a black instead of a white or, or a Hispanic instead of an Irishman. Following that, there is another word, Alotrius, Strong's number 245, which simply refers to someone or something of or belonging to another. And therefore, it was used opposite to oikaius. And oikaius means... Or, or refers to something in or of the house, oikos being a house, domestic, household affairs, property. So like Alogenes, 
Alotrius is not necessarily referring to people of non-Adamic races as we use the term race today, but it only refers to someone or something of another household or nation other than one's own. Now, after these terms, none of which specifically refer to people of non-Adamic races, there are the terms epidemio, which is a verb. It's a verbal form of epidemis, and parepidemis. And these are all rooted in the word demis, or people. The word from which we get democracy is demis in Greek. The word epidemis is literally by the people, but it was used to describe what was popular. So epidemio, the verb, is to be with the people, or in some contexts, with a foreign people, to be a sojourner. And similarly, and more precisely, parepidemis is sojourning in a strange place. None of these have any racial connotation, as they could also have been used to describe people of kindred race sojourning in one another's countries, a Roman in Macedonia, or, or a, a Judean in Syria. Finally, there is an, one more group of words, and these are all translated as stranger in, in, in the New Testament. There are paroikos, paroikia, or parochia, and paroikeo, and, and that's a noun, an adjective, and a verb. The word paroikos is a dwelling beside or neighboring. So the noun paroikia describes something or some, someone sojourning in a foreign land, and the related verb paroikeo was used in that same manner to describe someone dwelling beside natives or others in a land that was not their own. So just like the Hebrew terms, these were not ever specific words of, for people of non-Adamic or non-white races. But it was unfortunate, it's terribly unfortunate, that they are all translated generally as stranger throughout our Bibles, and in that manner, we are compelled to accept people of non-Adamic races. Although in the original context of Scripture, it was not people of non-Adamic races who are described by these terms. Not ever unless it described Rephaim, Nephilim, or Canaanites. People look for non-Adamic races in the Bible, and only those related to the Nephilim are ever mentioned specifically. There are no Hebrew words specifically describing other races, because in the ancient world, Hebrews rarely, if ever, came in contact with the brown, black, yellow, or red races. So they used allegories and called certain people roving creatures. And the biblical prophets spoke of beasts and satyrs and screech owls who would be inhabiting certain cities. Who are those beasts, satyrs, and screech owls and devils?
Who are they? Do we go to Babylon today and see satyrs, devils, and screech owls inhabiting ancient Babylon? Or do we see Arabs, people of mixed race? So those terms were used as pejoratives for people of mixed race, for the people that dwell there now, people of non-Adamic races. Yeah, they didn't even see them as people. They just saw them as beasts and devils and, and all, all evil, right? And, and so, so when people get upset... Sorry. Right. That's exactly right. And, and, and that's why the Zuzim... So when people get upset... I'm sorry. That, that you say nigger or chink, or would, that's how our ancestors spoke, right? They just used different, uh, you know, pejoratives. Right. It's the same. That's how they saw it. Right. Because they are not us. They are not Adam. They might be Enosh. You might be able to describe them with that word. And that's fair. They're mortal men. They're, they're bipeds. They can talk and kind of think. And, and I don't want to attribute to them too much intelligence, but yeah, they're, they're Enosh, but they're not Adam, and they're never to be treated like Adam, ever. And the scripture never treats them like Adam. The Bible is the book of the descendants of Adam as opposed to these other groups. These Zuzims in Genesis chapter 14, roving creatures, they were people. But the Hebrews had no better word for them than Zuzins, than roving creatures. That's how I look at Mexicans. I'm not wrong for doing that. That's what the scripture teaches. Yeah, and it's all forced upon us now. And uh, people need to realize that, that this is not natural. And that all, all this empathy, it's taught us by Jews. And we need to break out of that and go back to the original teaching. Well, that's, <laughs> that's always been my endeavor, to understand the, the Bible in the language and, and the, the use of words that it was originally written in, in the context it was originally written in. And Jews have been teaching Christians about Christianity for, for 1,800 years, ever since apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence. In the second century, Jews have been teaching Christians about Christianity ever since. They've been setting themselves up. They set themselves up throughout the Middle Ages by converting to Christianity, to Roman Catholicism. And as soon as they converted, the rabbis became bishops and started writing Bible commentaries, and Christians followed them. Martin Luther, in his treatise on the Jews and their lies, he quotes Time and time again, he uses and adopts arguments from Jews against the Jews, and the entire thing is a false dichotomy, a false paradigm. And, and in many ways, I love Martin Luther, but in many ways, he was wrong. And where he was wrong, he was always following Nicholas of Lyra, Paul of Burgos, and, and um, Raymond Lull, and other Jews who interpreted the Bible for him. And the King James translators, the same way, they learned their Hebrew from Jews, they learned their Bible from Jews. The Reformers were in bed with the Jews from the beginning, because the Jews wanted to destroy the power of the popes as much as the Protestants did. So the Jews threw their weight behind Martin Luther. 
Yeah, so, and if um, the devil's teaching you, he's obviously going to teach you that devils aren't bad, right? He's going to obfuscate that to protect himself, and that's exactly what Jews have done. Well, well right, and, and the Jew does it naturally. This, this isn't really a, a conscious conspiracy. It's what Jews naturally do. They have been the mixers of God's creation, that the corruptors of God's creation forever. If you look at all of the um, agenda in modern Christian civilization and see who is behind the push for immigration, the, the push for equality, the, the push for um, homosexuality for, and, and race mixing and everything we're being forced into today that we reject naturally, and many of us are just too afraid to admit that we don't like these things, it's Jews behind it all. The Jews have been the band leaders for egalitarianism and, and the acceptance of fornication, race mixing, and sodomy, or homosexuality, from, from the time the, of the Enlightenment. They've been beating this drum, and, and the French Revolution, and they were all emancipated, and they've been pushing this agenda on us for several hundred years. It's, we think from observation that it's coming to a head now, but it's probably going to get worse, and the Jews have been behind it all. Well, it's those same Jews that have been interpreting our Hebrew Bibles for us for 2,000 years. And this really started with the first translations of Scripture, this obfuscation of the distinct meanings of Hebrew words. have led us into this age of deceit. I don't know if I have any more to say without just rambling forever. <laughs> We're not done with this list. There's a few other important terms, but I, I think we'll probably finish it in the first hour next week. That's my guess right now. I could be wrong about that. I've been wrong before. Thank you for being here. Praise yeah, yeah, we're finally getting to Nephilim and Giants, right, after the Holy. I've, I've been waiting for that one. Right, and, and I think we're going to move Holy to the end, because here we just talked about bastards and strangers, and Nephilim should probably be next, and, and then devils and satyrs. <laughs> That's my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'll see you next Wednesday, Yahweh willing. Praise Yahweh. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Good night.